to be back. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. I'm going to read. And as I read, follow along with me. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Peter Simon, are you still asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. God, our Father, you are always speaking. You are always actively involved in our lives. And so as we spend just these few minutes um, observing and being onlookers in this moment in the life of Jesus, you are speaking, may you give us ears to hear, and may you give us hearts to know you. We desperately need you, God, to not just inform us, but transform us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. How would you react if the person you looked up to most suddenly becomes weak and vulnerable before you, how would you react? I know how my kids reacted when I became weak and vulnerable before them last year um, during the Christmas time. We had gone out somewhere and we were... Um, on our way back, we pulled into our driveway, and you know, when you have three kids, it's a whole process getting them out of the car and grabbing stuff, and so car doors are open. You know, I'm part, you know, I'm throwing kids, pulling kids out of the car. It, like, it just, it's a whole routine, all right? And we get everything out, and then 
one of the kids decide to shut the door, not realizing that my finger or my hand, you know what happened, right? And the door slammed on my finger. It was late at night. I screamed. I was on the floor going, ah, oh, ah, oh, oh, my finger. I thought it had been cut, you know, it had been ripped off, but luckily it wasn't. And I'm on the floor screaming and shouting and freaking out. And I'm seeing lights coming on the neighbor. No, I didn't, but oh, oh, it, it possibly did. This is a story, and you kind of want to paint it in the most picturesque way, whatever. And I'm screaming on the floor, and in this moment, and I don't know this because Eleanor tells me exactly what happens. He says, my kids start crying and freaking out because this was the first time they had witnessed me in great pain and suffering. And how they freaked out was they were crying and just didn't know what to do. When we got home, they were all surrounded around me and they were like, Daddy, are you okay? Do you want some ice on it? You know, and they were just so caring. But that moment where they freaked out outside was them reacting to seeing their dad someone who they looked up to and think, you know, and think I'm like the strongest person in the world because I tell them that um, <laughs> all the time. That was me on the floor, vulnerable and weak. As Jesus led them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, nothing could have prepared them for what they were about to witness. They were about to witness a, a side of Jesus they never knew existed. Now, Gethsemane was located on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, and the word Gethsemane is a Hebrew or Aramaic name, and it means olive press. And so, Gethsemane was a garden located within the olive tree groves on the Mount of Olives where olives were crushed and processed for oil. And so, as soon as Jesus and his disciples entered the garden, he left the majority of his disciples near the entrance and took with him Peter, James, and John to a more secluded area. And on their way, verse 33, look down at it, it lets us know that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Here, we're given a grim picture of Jesus's um, emotional and mental state. It says that he was distressed, and not just distressed and troubled, it says he was greatly distressed and troubled. One look at Jesus would have told you that there was something terribly wrong with him. His countenance has drastically changed until this moment. He has been in control. He's been oozing with confidence, even in the face of his enemies. But now, he's falling apart. His struggles, his agony, and his fears about facing death are unveiled for all to see. His emotions are not only made known outwardly, but he also describes how he feels. Look at verse 34. It says, um, he says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful 
even to death. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the grief and distress I'm experiencing is so overwhelming. It's so troubling. I feel like I'm going to die. Imagine what Peter, James, and John are thinking right now about the situation. Think about it. Their fearless leader, the rabbi they've dedicated their life to, the brilliant and insightful teacher they've heard lecture and debate so skillfully, um, the miracle worker they've witnessed do countless miracles is now weak and vulnerable before them. But even in his darkest moment, Jesus is so gracious. He still displays love and care for his disciples. Even in his weakest moment, he wants to help them. And so what he does is he gives them some advice that will protect and strengthen them. Look at verse 34 again. Um, he said, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And guess what he says after? You guys can see it. Remain here and watch. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him and his disciples. So he makes an emotional appeal to them to remain here and watch. This is another way of telling them to not neglect prayer, but to dive deeper into prayer because prayer is what will keep them spiritually aware. This is unbelievable. This right here is reminding us and highlighting for us the importance of, of prayer in every season. Okay? Jesus is in, he's in his weakest moment, and yet the advice he gives, the instruction he gives to his disciples is to pray. And so, as a church... May this reminder of the importance and necessity of prayer to keep us aware, inspire us to dive deeper into prayer. Not just corporately, but personally. And we want to be proactive in prayer. We don't want to be reactive, right? We don't want to wait till something crazy happens to us before we pray. We want to be proactive in prayer because right here, right now, Jesus is reminding us that prayer is what keeps us alert. More on that later. Look at verse 35. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus, this is what's happening. He leaves Peter, James, and John behind and walks a little further into an even secluded part of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. As soon as he's alone, what happens is that he falls to the ground and begins to pray. Back then, okay, most Jews prayed standing up and with hands lifted to heaven. 
But when someone was in distress, they would take on a totally different posture in prayer. They would actually pray lying stretched out on the floor with their face downward. And right here, right now, in this moment in the life of Jesus, all alone in a secluded part of Gethsemane, this is the posture he takes. He prostrates himself before God the Father in prayer to plead with him to deliver him from the horrific suffering that was in store for him. But... The interesting thing about this was that it was not so much the horror of physical torture that affected Jesus in this way. It was the spiritual horror of the cross that troubled and caused him great distress. Look at what Tim Keller says about this. He says he was facing something beyond physical torment, even beyond physical death something so much worse that the, than these, he was smothered by a smear whiff of what he would go through on the cross. Another author says this, it was not death, but the divine anger against sin, the imputation to him of all iniquities that filled his soul with horror. Imagine... walking into a time machine and being transported back to this moment in the life of Jesus. And you were actually one of his disciples witnessing this. How would you respond? And as Jesus agonized in prayer, verse 36 reveals that over, uh, overall, it reveals the overall content of his prayer. Look at verse 36. And he said, this is what Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There are so many fascinating things about Jesus' prayer. But one thing that stands out is that Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane was not just for his personal needs, but it was also for our benefit, right? We, we benefit so much from this, okay? So many benefits from this. And we we're going to talk later about, of course, it benefited us because he endured, right? And his prayer, his time helped him endure the cross. And as a benefit, we are now saved. But what I want us to zero on is that his prayer helps us to know how to pray. It serves as a model for how we should pray, especially when we find ourselves overwhelmed by anxiety, sorrow, or pain. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, okay? Um, the first thing we learn from Jesus' prayer is that when we pray, we should approach God as a good and loving Father. Jesus begins his prayer by addressing God as his Abba, Father. Abba means father in Aramaic. And Jesus and his disciples, really interesting, Jesus and his disciples grew up in an era where the word Abba was only used by children for their father and used by disciples for an esteemed teacher. 
Until this day in Gethsemane, no one had ever referred to God in this way. There's no evidence in pre-Christian literature that indicates that Abba was used as a personal address for God by an individual. Okay, um, scholar Mark Strauss says this, as far as we can tell, no one before had spoken of their relationship to God in such intimate terms or used Father as the standard way of addressing God in prayer. And so, by speaking of God as his father, Jesus was not only challenging cultural and religious norms, but he was expressing the intimate relationship he had with God. Just like Jesus, we have the amazing privilege to approach God in prayer as a loving and caring father who longs to hear from us and be with us. When you pray, how do you view God? Who is he to you? Is he a loving and caring and attentive father or is God a father who is too busy, too occupied with other things and other prayer requests to care for your needs? Our view of God may be more influenced by past experiences than biblical truth. Our view of God may be more influenced by past experiences or past experiences than biblical truth. And so the question is, what has shaped your view of God? How do you view God now? May the truth of who God is wash away the lies you have believed about him and clothe you with the truths you need to believe about him. And so if you are here and you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the amazing truth about you is you have a relationship with God the creator and he's not just God, the creator who is immense and great and mighty, he is also your father. He is. The second thing we learn from Jesus' prayer is that when we pray, we should believe that God our Father is all-powerful. Look at verse 36 again. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Stop right there. This is another way, okay, of saying God has no limits and that he is all-powerful. This means God can do whatever he wants and whenever he wants. He's so powerful that he created the universe with just a few words. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us that we can know God is real, that we can know God is powerful just by looking at what he's created. 
We just can. Most of us have the privilege of living in a city like San Diego, where we are surrounded over and over again by natural beauty. Look at the ocean. Look at the mountains. Look at the blue. Look at all of these amazing things we get to see and experience every day. And I need to do a better job at this. Every time I sit and I look at the ocean, I need to be reminded of how great and powerful is we're not just looking at this expanse of a blue, watery, it's not blue, sky reflects it, so it's blue, all of that, a blue, watery thing, but think about the ocean and how many different species of creatures exist in it. It's unbelievable. And then you can go deeper and deeper. My son is into like um, Lord Attenborough, and he loves all of these nature documentaries, and sometimes I get to watch it with him, and it's just amazing. Some of my favorites are like the Twilight Zone, where they go to this place or this zone under or deep in the ocean where it's just some of the creatures you see. It's unbelievable. And then you're not just going deep down, you're going up into the universe and all of the. And as we observe or even think about these things, it reminds us of how great God is. He is great, He is mighty. And because of this, God can do. Whatever and whenever he wants, all things are possible for him. His power is limitless. And so the question is, okay, do you believe this? Do you believe that all things are possible with God? Okay? This may seem like an easy truth to believe, but if we think about it long enough, okay, and we're honest with ourselves, it can be really challenging to believe that God is all-powerful, okay? Especially when he's not done the things we've asked him to do. It can be hard to believe God is all-powerful when we've prayed and asked him for the salvation of a loved one, but there's been no change. They keep going further and further away from God. It can be challenging to believe that God is all-powerful and anything's possible with him when we've prayed long and hard for healing and we're seeing no results. When we've prayed against evil, we've prayed against wickedness, we, we've prayed against child abuse, prayed against sex trafficking, prayed against the abuse of power, prayed against the evils and the brokenness of the world without seeing any change or victory. And when we don't see any change or victory, it can be hard for us to believe God is all-powerful, right? <laughs> it just can and I've been there. I've prayed for things that are good, and I've prayed against evil and all of that, and haven't seen any change. And I've struggled to believe all things are possible with God. What's helpful for us 
in these moments when we struggle to believe that God is powerful is this, that faith to believe God is all-powerful should never be based just on what we see or experience, but on what he said and what is said about him in his word. And so what that means for us is, man, just marinating ourselves in the word, in God's Bible, in the truths of who God is, because that's what builds our faith. To believe that he is not only our father, but he is also all-powerful. The third thing we learn from Jesus' prayer is that we should make all of our requests known to God. Look at verse 36 again. It says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It's a famous prayer. Most of you know this. And so after acknowledging God as Father and then recognizing his limitless power, Jesus pleads with God to remove the cup from him. You guys know this. Let me remind you, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the term cup is a metaphor for the wrath and punishment of God on human evil. It's an image of divine justice unleashed on, on, on justice. But here, Jesus is using it as a metaphor for the approaching death and suffering he must endure. He's pleading with God to change the circumstances. He's pleading with God to take away the cup of suffering from him. What we learn from this in prayer is that we're to make all of our requests known to God, where to approach God and be honest about what we want and what helps us approach God with this kind of confidence is that we are praying to a God who is loving and caring and is able to do what is impossible. And I struggle with this. There's just some things that I really want God to do. And because I'm not sure whether he wants to do them, I kind of get a little timid in prayer about asking for them. But here we're reminded, we're reminded through Jesus' prayer that we're to make all of our requests known to God. But let's never forget that even though we're invited to ask God for anything and everything, he will always do what is best for our good and his glory. And this leads us to the last thing we learn about prayer from Jesus' prayer, and that is we should make all of our requests known to God, but we should be willing to surrender to his will even if it doesn't align with what we want. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where it gets a little tense. While Jesus' human desire is to avoid the coming agony, he willingly surrenders to God's will by ending his prayer with the following words. Look at verse 36 again. It says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus brings his needs and desires to God, but most importantly, 
he willingly submits to the will of God the Father. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. God, Father, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I know that your desires are ultimately my desires. Do what we both know must be done. This right here for us as believers is a much needed reminder that prayer should not be all about getting what we want from God, but uniting our will with his will. And this is extremely hard. This is really challenging. This prayer Jesus prayed, yet not what I will, but what you will, is a model prayer for us. And when we have moments when we have to pray, it's challenging. And this is why. What's the one thing you know God, God wants for you that you don't want for yourself. What do you want for your life that is in conflict with what God wants for your life? If God is good, if he knows what's best for you because he's a good and loving and wise and gracious father, then what's the one thing God wants for you that you're finding it hard to say yes to? In other words, what would be your Gethsemane moment? What are you wrestling with God about in prayer? What do you really want God to do for you that he hasn't done or may not do for you. And Eleanor and I, we're in this situation with our whole visa situation, okay? Like we, we have desires. We, we want God to inspire, cause the government to approve our visas so we can continue it. And we've done all we can, due diligence in applying. But that's our prayer, we want God to do it. But there's a possibility we could get denied. And so when I think about this, when I think about what I really, really want for, for God to do that I'm not sure he's going to do, I kind of, not fully, begin to understand a little bit of what Jesus was going through. What do you really want God to do for you that he hasn't done or may not do for you? Or what do you know for sure God is calling you to that is in conflict with what you want for yourself? Perhaps for some of you here this morning is actually deciding to dedicate the entirety of your life to Jesus. It's saying, God, 
I know what you want for me. You want me to quit living for myself and start living fully for you. What do you know for sure God is calling you to that is in conflict with what you want for yourself? The most life-changing and life-giving type of surrender is letting God's will override your desires. We all have what things we want. We just do. But as we think and process these things, Jesus models for us what our response should be, and that is to say, God, whatever comes our way, whatever it is not what I will, not what I want, but I want to surrender to what you want. Jesus agonized in prayer all night for the circumstances to change, but eventually he hears the answer, no. God the Father does not always give us what we want. I love what Thomas Wright says. He says, if even Jesus received that answer to one of his most heartfelt prayers, we should not be surprised if sometimes it's that way for us too. Often the path God desires for us is costly. He may not give us what we want. He may not give us the smoothest ride, but it's the path that will lead to life, to a joy and delight that is way more satisfying than anyone or anything in this world. And so, as a church family, may we all surrender to God's will for our life, trusting that when we do, we will experience the joy and peace only he can provide. Trusting that he will work all things for our good and his glory. And that's what Jesus is praying in Gethsemane helps us know. It reminds us that God is our father. All things are possible for him. We should approach him and share our heart's desires with him, but we must also have a posture of humility and surrender that says, God, not what I will, but what you will. Not what I want for my life, but what you want for my life. How would you react when the person you look up to most suddenly expresses weakness and vulnerability? How did the disciples react? While Jesus is agonizing in prayer, his disciples are snoozing. It's been a long day, very eventful. They're just tired. And they've slowly drifted into a deep sleep. 37 reminds us that Jesus finds them sleeping and calls them out and tells them again to watch and pray so that they may um, not enter into temptation. 
And again, this was not the only time Jesus prayed, but we're told here in Mark and in the other Gospels um, that he went two more times, and again, he came back (laughs) and still saw his disciples um, sleeping. Um, And as a pastor, it's funny, I've experienced this, where you're trying to, like, disciple and pour into someone. It's early morning or late at night, and they're looking at you and just like sleeping right in front of you. And of course, my situation is no way as um, devastating as Jesus is, but the whole idea of just being tired and just the disciples, you would expect them to stay up and be all about prayer because Jesus was in a really difficult spot, but they sleep. And verse 40 to 41, 42, 42 says, Jesus came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy And they did not know what to answer him. 41 says, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Um, 42 says, Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus' faithfulness to his Father's will stands in stark contrast to the unfaithfulness of his disciples. While he was faithful to his responsibilities, they failed miserable in their responsibilities. Their lack of support for Jesus in prayer predicted their future unfaithfulness to him. Not too long from now, they will all betray Jesus. They will scatter in every direction trying to save their own lives when he is arrested and they will openly deny him while he's being condemned to death and ultimately they will all abandon him and flee because they're not prepared to take up their cross and follow him. Oh, the disciples. How can they? How can they flop so hard, right? They failed miserably. But as we study, okay, the life of the disciples, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we are so different to them, okay? We just are not. When times get hard, the question is, will we abandon Jesus? When Jesus is no longer popular, when your association with Jesus um, will get you into a lot of trouble, will you, like the disciples, abandon him because you're not prepared to take up your cross and follow him? What is it going to be for you in the future? I've been thinking a lot about Um, kind of the trajectory of the West and where we're heading and we're becoming more and more post-Christian, okay? We just are. The big cities becoming more and more post-Christian in so many ways. And the more post-Christian we get, the more deeper we get into that, the more hostile um, that the the culture is going to be towards Jesus. And we're already seeing glimpses of it now. And so when it gets really intense, when... Uh, being associated with Jesus is no longer cool or acceptable, how will we respond? Because that's kind of what's happening here. 
But one of the most beautiful things about all of this is that the unfaithfulness of the disciples did not affect Jesus' faithfulness to them. Have you noticed? He still went ahead and died for them. Okay, Jesus could have said, hey guys, you guys, that, that is it, <laughs> right? I'm done with you. I'm not gonna use you again. But we know the story. Jesus still goes and dies and he doesn't just do that, but he actually uses them as his instruments for his purposes. And it's because of these disciples that we have come to understand the Christian faith and we're kind of disciples in the modern world um, um, continuing that. Jesus is still committed to suffering and dying for them despite their failures. Jesus remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. He continues to involve us in his mission even when we have a track record of being untrustworthy. No matter how unfaithful you've been to Jesus, he still remains faithful to you. No matter how many times you've let him down, he, will st- he still remains committed to you. And the reason is because he hung on the cross and declared it was finished because he emerged from the grave victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And because of this, Jesus will remain faithful to you. He just will. And the interesting thing about all of this is the reason why Jesus endured, the reason why Jesus died, wasn't primarily for you or me. We read this and we hear this and it can become all about us. That Jesus endured for us. He did it for us. But if we look closely enough, we come to recognize that Jesus was primarily faithful to God And that's who he was faithful to, God, his father. And as an overflow of that, he was faithful to us. He was faithful to his father. He was obedient to his father. And that stood out to me like a sore thumb as I was studying this. Because it can become about, look what Jesus went through for us. Look what it's all about me. It's all about, no, it's not. It's always been and it will always be about God's glory and God's fame. The reason why God saves us is not just for our benefit so we can have a relationship with God and go to heaven. The reason why God saves us the way he did is because he wants his fame, his renown, his grace, his mercy to be displayed to the world. And that is what it's all about. God is about his glory. And as a result of the pursuit of God's glory, we benefit from that in so many ways. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for reminding us of these truths. And so as we relate to you, as we're reminded of the fact that you're our Father, as we're reminded of the fact that you, um, all things are possible for you, as we're reminded of the fact that you call us to pursue you in prayer and be honest about our needs. And as we're reminded that we're called to surrender to your will and surrendering to your will may seem challenging, but it will be the most life-giving and life-changing decision we ever make. And so help us to trust you. To trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And so we're going to enter into a time, kind of the beginnings of our worship, where we kind of call it a reflection time. And this is what's probably going to happen in your mind. You're going to be thinking about all sorts of things, what you're going to be doing next and all of that. But we want you to make this time all about you and God. And we want you to begin to search your heart and pray to him and ask him, God, um, in what way is what I want for my life in conflict with what you want for me? Okay, ask those questions. And also, you can read the passage again during this time. You can pray, you can sit there, you can meditate, you can reflect. And as you do, may you be reminded in the most supernatural way of who God truly is and how the decision to surrender to what he wants for your life will become the most life-changing and life-giving decision you ever make. Amen.